So greetings, anyone joining us online, welcome to Heart City Church. I'm Joel and it is my privilege to serve you today. I invite you to turn to John 17. John 17, we're going to look at verses 20 to 26. Verses 20 to 26. These words are significant. Why is that, Joel? These are the final words of Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus has just celebrated the last Passover with the twelve. He gave his final instructions, John 13 to 16. Judas has already slipped away. Chapter 18 begins with Jesus being betrayed and sent off to be crucified. We are about to hear Jesus' very last words. The last words are important, aren't they? Do you know what Jesus' last words are? A prayer. A prayer. John 17 is often called Jesus' high priestly prayer because it follows the pattern of the Old Testament prophets. The Levites would first pray for themselves, and then they would pray for their immediate family, and then thirdly, they would then pray for all of God's people. You're going to see Jesus follows this pattern. He first prays for himself, then for his disciples. We're going to actually look at then the verses 20 to 26 for those who would believe in the disciples' word. So who's that Jesus is praying for, Joel? Us. You and I. Jesus' last words are a prayer for the church. His very last words. We get to hear that we're on Jesus' heart. Jesus is looking down the corridor of time, and he is seeing us, and he's praying for us here. Why is that? Why are we so important? We're actually going to hear in verse 24, pay attention there, Jesus is going to say, that we are a gift from his heavenly Father, a gift to Jesus. You and I, we're a love gift from his Father, which is why Jesus prays for us. Does that make your heart skip this morning? It should. Jesus praying for us. And remember, your salvation is not merely won by Jesus coming in our flesh, his going to the cross and dying, and then his resurrection. Your salvation is also the result of Jesus' prayers for you. So this passage, I hope you'll find it, provides us assurance, certainty, confidence today. Jesus prayed for and continues to pray for you because he knows you face many difficulties. Let me ask you, what sorrows, what worries, what problems, what fears, what did you carry in here today? Dear ones, John 17 is the answer. It is the answer. I'm going to ask this question as we enter this text. I invite you to ask this question of yourselves. What might happen to you today if you truly took in what Jesus prays for you right here in John 17? With all that's coming at you, what might happen to you if you truly took it in? Robert Murray McShane once said, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. So let's pray for eyes of faith as we enter into this text. Heavenly Father, uh, we enter into this text, and I know that all of Scripture is profitable for us. We believe that. And yet there's sort of an inner sanctum moment here as we get to 
hear your son speaking to you about us. I ask and pray, oh, will you send your Holy Spirit that we might hear Jesus' heart, that we might know your love, that we might believe the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now hear the word of our God from John 17, verses 20 to 26. Jesus says, Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said that some pray by the yard, but true prayer is measured by weight, not by length. And weightiness is certainly true of what we find here in our Lord's Prayer. I won't even begin to be able to plumb the depths of it. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 48 sermons on John 17. There's a very thick book. There is so much here. So for homework later, you can go over the whole chapter, these 26 verses, and be lifted to heaven. You see, here we're actually eavesdropping on a divine conversation between the Father and the Son about us, about us. Hear that as an encouragement to be d discovering God's life-giving word regularly. Do you want to touch God? Do you want to leave this world a better place? Spend time in God's word every day. Don't let it collect dust. You'll encounter God's heart here. And as we grow heavenly-minded, you'll be able to do a lot of earthly good, a lot of earthly good. So let's look at this last section. Um, actually, the whole thing, commentators say there's between five and seven petitions. We're only going to look at the last two here that we find in this last section where Jesus prays for the church, for you and I. And I think it's here we see as clearly as anywhere else in Scripture how much we are loved, how much we're loved, how much we matter as chosen love gifts from the Father to the Son. I hope that you take home today that you belong to Jesus. You belong to Jesus. Every morning I walk out of my room and I face this wall hanging and ask this question, what is your only comfort in life and death? And I know Sam could recite the answer with me, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. What wonderful comfort that stares at me every single morning. Our identity in Christ gives us ultimate assurance. 
When facing the question of who am I, my identity in this increasingly confusing age, guess what? You and I, we can relax, we can smile and say, oh, I know who I am. I'm a gift to Jesus. I'm a gift to Jesus. You can ignore today's call to self-discovery, to look within to find meaning and purpose. We see actually in John 17, this is our main point I hope we take away, the search for who we are is never found by looking inward, but by looking outward and upward. Remember that. Our culture says look within, but the God who made you says look out, look up. Our identity is found outside ourselves in Christ's church and in Christ. So our first point is that unity be our reality. That's what Jesus prays. We see in verses 21 to 23, Jesus prays that our unity be our reality. He says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. It's pretty clear this prayer because Jesus prays for our unity, that we might be perfectly one. Now let me caveat here. Let me say what unity isn't. I was actually talking with a brother recently. He says he dislikes denominations and wants all the churches to be one. That's what he sees John Jesus praying for here in John 17. That can't be. First, and actually Catholics argue that, right? They want to argue for this all under one umbrella unity. That isn't what Jesus prays for here. Why? Well, because Jesus prayed right before this that we would be sanctified in the truth. And Rome has departed from gospel truths, from Bible truths. They deny justification by faith alone. They actually deny assurance of salvation. That's why they anathematize Protestants. They didn't believe we should have assurance of our salvation. Being sanctified in truth means we cannot hold hands with others who depart from Bible truths. And organizational unity on a large scale cannot be what Jesus means because of the so that that follows. The unity Jesus prays for, he says, will make the world believe the gospel and the love of God. Now, for you sports fans, you know the big news last month or this month is how several colleges left the Pac-10 to join the Big Ten, UCLA, USC, Washington, and Oregon, all joined to unite 18 schools as one, all together. Have you heard any sports people saying, wow, look at how they love each other? That can't be what Jesus means. No, the unity that Jesus prays for here is not what human beings can create. It must come down from above. The disciples actually understood this. They understood Jesus' instructions. After Jesus leaves, read Acts 1. Like us, actually, they had the instructions. Like us, they knew that actually unity was attainable because Jesus prayed for it. And like us, this afternoon, they gathered together to pray, to look up to God, to bring that needed unity. By the way, this is Pastor Dole putting in a plug for our afternoon prayer meeting. What happened on that first Pentecost Sunday? That otherworldly unity became a reality. In Acts 2, the Holy Spirit was poured out and folks began to come together into community. Class and race were no longer divides. And we hear specifically that those with wealth helped those who lacked it. 
And this spirit-driven unity caused churches to spring up everywhere where the disciples' word went out. Jesus' prayer was being answered. I mean, Christianity exploded in Asia, in Africa, in Europe, throughout the Middle East. You realize this is such a huge historical phenomenon. What Israel didn't do in 1,500 years, in 100 years, the New Testament church just exploded. Do we want to see revival in our community? Well, let's invite the Spirit so that our witness, our unity will lead many to say, wow, I don't believe any of those truths they have, but man, I can see the love there. Wow, they must really believe the Father loves them. By the way, I do see that happening here. Praise be to God. The Spirit is taking the gospel and freeing us to otherworldly unity. See, the Spirit, it frees us to be open-handed with what we have and open-hearted about what we lack. We're being free to both share our possessions, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, and our problems, Galatians 6, 2. You see, we're liberated to obey Jesus' call both to bless and to burden each other, depending on where God has positioned us. And we need to be, keep praying about this because none of us have fully arrived. Why is that so hard? To be open-handed and open-hearted. To open our hands to give and to open our hearts to grieve. To share that with others, the problems. It's really simple. Pride. Pride is what destroys unity. Pride causes us to look inward instead of outward. To turn inward on myself. Every day, I walk around with the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I, and it's trying to warm itself into every situation in life. And pride, what it does is it causes endless ego evaluation. Endless ego evaluation. What do you mean by that, Joel? Well, some of us come into church, and we're thinking, do I look good? Do I look good? How does coming here benefit me? And then I also evaluate others how I'd live their lives, which leads to what? Close-handedness. Pride produces a superiority complex, or what our culture likes to call high self-esteem, which is not a good thing. Others of us come here with a low opinion of ourselves. What do others think of me? I'm a nobody. I evaluate myself based on what I cannot do or what everybody else has that I don't have. Put me in a room of winners and I'm an emotional wreck the rest of the day, which closes my heart. We don't share our problems, our burdens, because we have an inferiority complex or low self-esteem. And inferiority is just as prideful as superiority. To be self-conscious is to be equally self-absorbed. It's not humble. C.S. Lewis, talking about looking inward instead of outward as a problem, he says humility is not thinking less of yourself, but about yourself less. That's what humility is. Maybe Christianity is something that you're exploring. Maybe you're watching online. What is Christianity about? Well, we're actually invited to find true and lasting significance and happiness and joy by trusting Jesus who counted himself as more significant than us and went to the cross on our behalf. We're trusting that we belong to Jesus the moment we first believe, who purchased us with his blood so we are now free to be self-forgetful. 
We don't have to serve any longer the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. Why? Because the verdict's already in on me. <laughs> the moment I first believe, I'm a blood-bought, spirit-filled son of the king or daughter of the king. And as beloved children of God, we can get off the performance treadmill trying to earn people's acceptance by the things we do or what we do to ourselves. We can stop actually lugging ourselves into every situation and conversation, evaluating others or worrying about others think about me. Isn't that exhausting? Isn't it exhausting to look inward for every time you look outward? Endless ego evaluation actually makes humility impossible. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis notes that most folks in Western culture wouldn't even recognize humility today because we actually think high self-esteem is a good thing. He wrote, it would knock your socks off if you actually met a truly humble person, though you wouldn't recognize it was humility. You'd walk away feeling so loved, and you'd just be like, wow, I couldn't believe how interested that person was in me. Because why? That's what the Blessed Holy Trinity is like. That's what Jesus is praying for, that we would be like the Blessed Holy Trinity. God is love. And Jesus prays that we'll be like God, that unity will be our reality. And Christians alone, Christians alone can be outward looking, united in love, revealing to the world the Trinity. when we take in the good news that we're love gifts of the Father to the Son. Our second point is glory given and our goal. Jesus' second petition is, Father, verse 24, take this in, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Richard Baxter once said he would not trade this Bible verse for the whole world. Someone said, let me just take that one Bible verse, you get the whole rest of the Bible, I'll give you the whole world. He said, no way. I need this verse. I'd encourage you to meditate on it. Maybe fill your name in there. Father, I desire that Joel also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, that Mike might be with me where I am, that Lucinda might be with me at my, where I am to see my glory. Jesus is praying this for us. You see Jesus yearning deeply. This is his heart cry, his final request. The Greek word for desire is really strong here. The King James, I think, gets it better when it says, Father, I will that they. I think it's fitting to say that this is Jesus' last will and testament. This request. Jesus' dying wish is that you and I, at the end of history, be with him and see his glory. Jesus prays first that we'll be with him because being with our loving Lord Jesus is what heaven is. Heaven is not simply golden streets and mansions. It's not simply the end of pain and death and fighting. <laughs> Samuel Rutherford said, if Christ were not in heaven, then heaven would be hell to me. Because that's what heaven is, being with the Lord Jesus. And Rutherford can rejoice because of Christ's prayer here. He prays that we will be with him. And Jesus also yearns for us to see his glory. And I really want to highlight this because this glory is a big deal. 
It's actually the very first thing Jesus prays for. Verse 1 of this prayer. Look for it later. For the Father to glorify him. And then with his very last request, Jesus prays that we'll experience this glory he's prayed for. His glory, what is that? It's the eternal grandeur of all his perfections as God. But also now as the reigning resurrected redeemer. How great it will be in glory. Some of us still experience Jesus in his humiliation. We hear his name used all the time as a curse word. How great it's going to be when you see him in his glory as king of kings and lord of lords. Never to have his name used profane and ever again. Friends, it's going to be great. Nothing could satisfy you more. Why? Because humans were uniquely created to reflect God's glory. Uniquely, out of all creation. That's, glory is something we lost when our parents first rebelled in Genesis 3. Seeing Christ's glory in the future will mean we regain what we lost and we're going to get far more because there was a greater goal than just Eden. Paul gets at this in Philippians 3, 20 and 21. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That right there is the answer to so many faithful Christians who I talk to who are disappointed at how their lives turned out. They made the wrong decisions or they failed to accomplish all these things they had planned. Or maybe they're simply just getting old, which they take to mean they no longer have any future. (laughs) Friends, this is a failure to see the abundant eternal life that is in front of us. It's all ahead of us. It's in front of us. And Jesus yearns that we will get this, that we'll take this in, this future glory. Uh, and I know some of you may be saying, well, that's great, Joel, but that's not yet. How does that help me today? <coughs> well, look back at verse 22. Jesus also said, we already have his glory. He said that I have given the glory, Father, to them that you gave to me. Which means when we believe, we now see Christ's glory in part by faith. We can see it by faith. There's this great English theologian, John Owen, and he sent his dying days on earth writing a book called The Glory of Christ. On his deathbed, I think he finished it. He encouraged the constant meditation on Christ's glory as a means to transform your life. He said Christ's glory cannot simply be an idea in your head or it'll get you nowhere. And some Christians, well, they get the idea and then they make the mistake of trying to imitate Christ's virtues on their own. This is not only exhausting, but we can't truly transform ourselves. And if you become righteous in others' eyes by your own efforts, what does that make you? A Pharisee. Yeah, yeah, a Pharisee. Owen says we cannot truly be transformed apart from seeing glory. Taking it in, let me illustrate. A few weeks back, Jamie and I took the little boy we're fostering to see a specialist. His head is really deformed. It's really flat on one side because he favors laying on that side. One ear is actually about an inch in front of the other right now. It's a result of how he laid in the womb and possibly due to drug exposure and neglect. The doctor said, well, he needs a helmet, he needs physical therapy, and lots of tummy time. Lots of tummy time. 
This little boy hated tummy time. Hated it. That's a picture of you and I in our fallen condition. We're born broken and warped. It's a real chore and it's painful for us to try and correct all the things that are wrong with us, right? How we grew up and all the sin problems we have. You know what Jamie did for this little boy? She bought him a tummy time station. Has this little pillow that he gets propped up on. It's like a U-shape. And has all kinds of shiny and noisy things on it. But the really cool thing is what's right in front of him. If he'll just push his head up to look at it. There's this piano with five keys that all light up. And they got shapes. And they play music. And for this five-month-old, what he sees is glory. (laughs) Glory. He loves it so much that he's doing longer and longer stretches of tummy time. And it's no chore. He coos, he enjoys it, he cries out, and he's being transformed the whole time. Do you realize that? The glory he sees is transforming him. He's actually been resting his head now on his other side. I love looking at his little face as the lights shine on him, and he just... That's what we need to be doing with eyes of faith. Be transformed by glory. I know that little boy will soon tire of that tummy time station because that's how it is with all earthly glories. That's why we must keep Christ's eternal glory in worship, in focus. We're called to set our minds on things that are unseen. That's what faith is. We believe in order to understand, not the other way around. We fix our eyes on what is unseen, on what is eternal, and we do that actually believing that Christ's prayer that we be with him, he is already with us. He is with us here walking up and down the aisles, touching some of your hearts. The Holy Spirit's at work. Hebrews 2 says, Christ is our worship leader, rejoicing in all the children the Father has given to him. What a joy it is to gather to be with Christ and to see his glory every Sunday until that face-to-face. We come to church thankful that the likes of us are welcome in these doors at all with our warped heads and stammering tongues. We can sing, How Great Is Our God! You can belt out, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, our great Redeemer's praise, the glories of our God and King, the triumphs of His grace, which is us. We are the triumphs of Christ's grace. Let me ask you, what might happen if you and I came to church fully fixated on Christ's glory, not looking inward at all? Minds meditating on His majesty, hearts hungering for the imminence of the infinite. We came here hoping and praying, expecting that that glory that descended on Sinai, the glory that filled Solomon's temple, would actually descend upon us. We came here welcoming what Jesus prayed for, what he desired for us to experience. Who knows? We might get a preview. I'd love that. God may well manifest his presence. I can imagine this service coming to a screeching halt as the Spirit shifted every single one of our thoughts out of ourselves, fully fixated on God because there's nothing more than Him. I'd love that just once. Just once. Do you realize that the most real thing about you is your desire for God? That is the most real thing about you. It's more real than your sin, than your shame, than your fears, your failures. That is the most real thing about you is your desire from God. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Him. We're hardwired for glory. Every emotion you experience is a heavenly homing beacon for something more. 
So let us, as we come to worship with eyes of faith, 2 Corinthians 3, behold the glory of the Lord, and we'll be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Move to our final point, Christ's confidence. Christ's confidence that God will do this. O righteous Father, he prays, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Jesus closes by addressing his Father, you don't see this, as righteous Father. Because Jesus' conviction that in uniting and glorifying the people the Father has given him, that all his Father is doing is right. This is right. Jesus is confident of God's choice in saving you. More confident than probably we are, right? And Jesus is also confident, despite the world's ignorance, God will be known. His glory will cover the world. Five times Jesus uses the word know, as he did earlier in verse 23 when he said, through our unity, the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. The world will know God sent Jesus and that the Father, catch this, loved us like he loved Jesus. You want an assurance policy? God's love for you is secured by the love of the blessed Holy Trinity for themselves, the three persons. You see that? You notice every section actually ended with God's love? And verse 23 and 25 are incredible. Jesus prays that we're going to take in the Heavenly Father loves us even as he loves his Son. Have you taken in that the Heavenly Father loves each and every one of us sitting here as much as he loves his own Son seated right next to him in glory? Have you taken that in? No, you haven't. No, you haven't. And neither have I. Because if we did, we'd never be tempted to sin or be afraid. This is why this is the answer to every problem we face. If we took into the bottom of our being, to the core, from the top of our heads to the soles of our feet, if we took in God's love for us, that the Father loves us like he loves Jesus, you wouldn't care about anything anybody said or did to you. You wouldn't care. You could handle any criticism at all because of the almighty acceptance. He stamped you as his. John 17 is the answer to every last one of our problems. It's salve for the sad soul. It's the hope of the unhealthy, a lift to those who are lonely. It pops our pride, but it's also the answer to our anxiety, to our struggles with sin. It's a help for the hurting. Jesus prays that you'll discover that God loves you that much. God loves you that much. But I don't want to stop there because that's not the full gospel. So here's how we'll close. We see here that the gospel is far more, and I want to keep emphasizing this, it's far more than God loves you. Jesus died for me. The gospel is more than that. John 17, 24 says it's far more. Jesus prayed, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. You see, Jesus' prayer for us to be in heaven with him, to see his glory, is not grounded in God's love for us. 
I'm not saying God doesn't love us, but look at how Jesus prays. Jesus prays we get to be in heaven with him because the Father loves the Son. We are saved because of a love between the Father and the Son rooted in eternity. Do you see that? That means it's okay if our grandkid or our kid comes back from Sunday school with a drawing, maybe a cross written in crayon. God loves you. Well, don't tear that up. I'm not saying that. Don't make them cry, okay? It's good for where they're at. But there's a deeper thing here, a deeper truth. John 17, 24 says they could do art in one of those rooms and come out and hold it up and says, God loves himself. The Father loves the Son, and that is worthy of putting on the refrigerator too. What am I getting at? If the gospel is simply God loves you, you are loved, who's the subject? Who's at the center of it all? We are, and we turn inward. But Jesus closes his prayer pointing out that his mission to save us was to make God known. To make God known. It's about God. Now, wait a minute, Joel. God loves me and saves me, but he's got an ulterior motive the whole time. The end game of God's loving me and saving me is focused on his fame and his glory. Joel, are you saying that God is focused inward on himself? Yeah. If that ruffles your feathers, then I'll ask, who in this room wants the glory? Please raise your hand. I'm glad there's no takers. <laughs> no one turning inward because only God should get the glory. He's our creator. He's our redeemer. The Father and the Son get all the glory. And the exciting part is when we put it all together. God's love for himself and his passion for his glory do not reduce one bit his love for you. Because if God is the most glorious, the most infinite, the most majestic, the most beautiful of all, what is the greatest possible way he could show you his love? By sharing himself with you for all of eternity. You see? That's never-ending joy. We began with Heidelberg Catechism Question 1 to make Sam smile. We're going to end with Westminster Catechism 1 to make maybe Rex smile. What is man's chief end? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And Jesus is confident that his Father will answer that prayer for us. So as we enter a new week, let us see that God's love and his glory don't land on us and go no farther. With eyes fixed upward, we go outward to make God's glory known to a watching world, to his praise. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we come to you and we want to just thank you that you are the God who loves us and promises to turn every suffering, every agony, every hurt, even our failures will all work their way backwards when we reach heaven and be turned to glory. We will leave here, Father, and face darkness and uncertainties in this world. So we ask that in those moments, you'll give us a vision of our loving Lord Jesus praying with and for us in heaven right now. We pray this in his name. Amen.